Hello, listeners, and welcome to Digital Buzz Radio, the podcast of the Georgetown ISD Digital Learning Team, where we are navigating innovation with you. Welcome to the fifth episode of Digital Buzz Radio. I'm Amy Heil, and I'm here today with fellow digital learning coaches, Heather Solis and Sandy Kendall. Hi. On today's episode of Digital Buzz Radio, we will be talking about inspiring student creativity for learning. As we were thinking about this month's episode, we started thinking about how our district is now one-to-one with devices. And this led us to start thinking about how we can leverage technology for learning, empower students to become consumers for creativity, and ultimately move learning from being passive to active and personalized. On today's episode, we will hear from educator and author, Dr. John Spencer. Dr. Spencer will be sharing his expertise about creating more and consuming with a purpose. We will also have a Georgetown ISD educator guest, Jessica Powell. She's a learning design coach at Wagner. Jessica will be sharing ways that she is leveraging technology to engage students to extend their learning with creativity. And I am beyond excited to have John Spencer on an episode of Digital Buzz Radio. I think everyone has seen at least one of his videos, and I encourage you to check out his books. As a classroom teacher, John's books, Launch and Empower, really inspired me and honestly felt freeing to me. They gave me that permission that I needed to look beyond just the requirements of the curriculum and testing and be able to focus more on learning and my students learning. And John and Spencer really encourages us to start small and allow opportunities for our students to be creative. Today we have a special guest on Digital Buzz Radio. Dr. John Spencer is a former middle school teacher and a current college professor on a quest to transform schools into bastions of creativity and wonder. He wants to see teachers unleash the creative potential in all of their students so that kids can be makers, designers, artists, and engineers. He explores research, interviews educators, deconstructs systems, and studies real-world examples of design thinking in action. He's the author of Empowered at a Distance and Vintage Innovation, and is also the co-author with A.J. Giuliani of Empower, What Happens When Students Own Their Learning, and Launch, Using Thinking to Boost Creativity and Bring Out the Maker in Every Student. Dr. Spencer also has a podcast called The Creative Classroom. You can follow him at spencerauthor.com, at spencervideos.com, and on Twitter at Spencer Ideas, where his bio reads professor, author, maker. Sometimes I make things, sometimes I make a difference. On a good day, I get to do both. John, is there anything else that you would like to tell us about yourself? No, that, that sounds great. Yeah, appreciate it. <laughs> Welcome. We're glad to have you today. I'm glad to be here. Yes, welcome, John. Uh, We are so excited to have you join us today, and uh, we're going to launch right into uh, some questions for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So our first question is, our district is shifting to standards-based grading in grades pre-K through five, and we are working on personalized learning. And so what has been your experience with what happens when students own their own learning? You know, I just want to start by saying I love the fact that you're thinking about personalized learning and student ownership along with 
standards-based grading because the whole goal and purpose of standards-based grading is to think about mastery rather than using grades as sort of a, a reward system for something different, you know? And one of the things I found with standard-based grading and mastery-based grading in general is that when students know their mastery level, they're more empowered themselves to own the assessment process. They're more likely to, to engage in meaningful self-assessment and peer assessment. And, and I kind of began that journey myself in terms of student ownership with things like choice boards and giving them options. And then it began to move into, you know, actual projects and then letting them decide some of the strategies that they're using and, and owning the creative process and more of the collaborative process. But I honestly had a hard time at first with the assessment process and really letting go of control of the assessment process. And I found that when I shifted toward standard-based grading, the student ownership of the assessment process began to really click. And I remember challenging my principal, every time he would come in, I would say, ask them what standard they're working on and what their mastery level is. Ask them what they know and what they don't know and what they're going to do next. And they did. And it was this magical moment for me where I realized it's actually less work for me, right? It's they're doing more of the work themselves. I'm less exhausted. Grading becomes more of a conversation. It's, it's, it's this authentic give and take back and forth rather than this chore that I would have to do because I, I hated, I, honestly, I, I hated grading. Um, and so I, I'll, I'll just start by saying that. But, you know, what has my experience been with what happens when students own their learning? I think there's a lot of different things. It gives them those critical, essential skills. You know, some people call them soft skills. I would say that they're essential skills. Um, it prepares them for the world. It uh, prepares them for college, for career. Um, but it also allows them to learn at a deeper level and the learning tends to stick, right? So there's a lot of new research that's coming out about um, you know, project-based learning and how it's, it can help improve student achievement. And I think it's because of that factor that they're more engaged, they're learning at a deeper level and the learning is sticking instead of you know, cramming for a test and forgetting about it. So I would say you know, it's deeper learning, it's better learning, it's more achievement, but it's also prepping them for an uncertain world. I love seeing your dog, by the way. I just want to point that out again. She can come Thank you. I, she I don't know if y'all saw, I froze for a second. So, so John, thanks for that. I love the connections you made between uh, standards grading and personalized learning and students owning their learning. So. Um, I think that's going to be exciting for our teachers to hear. Uh, another thing that's that's important in our district is um, Schlechti's Designing Engaging Work. Mm -hmm. We uh, try to make sure that every one of our classroom teachers has gone through that training. Mm -hmm. And um, as a matter of fact, your video on YouTube about mm -hmm. um, Schlechti design is something that a lot of our teachers have seen as part of when we share with them because it's such a good explanation of that. So what we wanted um, to hear from you, from your perspective, is how does designing engaging work benefit our students? I think when you're really focused on meaningful engagement, so when we think about Schlechty's levels of engagement, when you have the high attention and high commitment factors, 
then they're much more likely to engage in that deep work that's necessary to learn it at a deeper level. I think beyond the fact that, you know, they learn it at a deeper level, the learning lasts similar to what I brought up before. What I've noticed is that when it is truly engaging, when they are fully engaged, and, and that's where that commitment component comes in, right? That second part. So just not just focus, but true commitment. They're much more likely to continue when it gets tough, right? They develop that resilience, that, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, a growth mindset, grit, and they persevere through the tough challenges of the learning. Um, and that's where, you know, I, I kind of view engagement as, as one of the main goals. And I think the, the deeper level of the deepest level, I would argue, is empowerment, where there's that true ownership. So not only are they committed and, and they, they're focused, but they have that full 100% buy-in and, and a sense of ownership. And what you see is that's when they, that's when they persevere past the challenging times. And I think the last year and a half, two years has shown just how important that resilience is. Um, you know, the students who have struggled the most, it has not been purely an engagement aspect, although that's definitely been part of it. It's been a lack of self-direction, right? It's been a lack of being a self-manager and a self-starter. And the ones who are thriving in this situation um, or who are at least getting past the challenges and finding success in their learning tend to be the ones that are those self-managers, those self-starters that are getting the work done, um, that are viewing setbacks as, as barriers that they can work around, um, you know, are able to iterate and improve. Uh, and so that's where I think it, the engagement piece comes in so much but not just the engagement piece, but that empowerment piece as well. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> um, so as a result of the pandemic, <laughs> our district became a one-to-one -one device district um, during that time period. And now every student either has a Chromebook or an iPad. And um, our team has really, our digital learning team has really encouraged student or encouraged teachers to give students the opportunity to create more and consume less. And that's how we had phrased it. But kind of reading in your book, Empower, we were noticing that you mentioned kind of a shift from consuming to creating. And we were wondering if you could kind of share your thoughts about that with us. Yeah, you know, it, it's, um, it's interesting. When I was a student, I'll, I'll just share this briefly. I, I did this uh, history day project. It was the first time I ever really owned my learning. And I spent a full year on it. I interviewed people. I, um, I wrote a script. I created a slide presentation and I presented and then I went to the competition. I got to go to the state competition, the national competition. And um, it was the first time I was really empowered to own the learning. But the interesting thing is every technology that I used is now obsolete, right? Um, to, to make a slide, I was trying to explain this to my kids. They just couldn't fathom it. So we had to go on Google and I had to show them. We had a slide carousel and you would have to use physical film. You, you'd have to take it to the drugstore and get it developed. There was this place called Thrifties and they had this like cylinder ice cream. So it was always fun to go there anyway. Um, to, to, to do research required you to um, use microfilm and microfiche and, and like do that. And 
even when I interviewed experts, I had to time it because long distance phone calls cost money, right? All of these things are different. So now we have this amazing creative capacity at the palm of our hands, and we have this amazing connective capacity. You can find information anywhere, you can communicate with experts anywhere, that kind of thing. But the reality is these devices are largely consumer devices, right? So even though they can be used creatively, even though they can be used to connect as well, they're typically used for amusement and for entertainment. So students come to school and their earliest experiences, if you think about it with an iPad when they were little was probably playing a game, watching a video, you know, being on an airplane, not making noise, watching, you know, Dora the Explorer, whatever it may be. And there's nothing wrong with that being the case, but the reality is they don't come to us as digital consumers. They come to us as, as or sorry, uh, digital natives. They come to us as consumer natives. And because of that, teaching them to use their devices in a creative way is different. Now, I think there's a lot of fun things. You're seeing more students who are actually creating and editing their own videos, um, some of it on TikTok and stuff. Um, you see more of them that are, 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 are using it to connect in a more meaningful way, but it's still the minority. It's still not the norm. And I think one of the, the thoughts on getting them to engage uh, in that creative work is designing those opportunities where they can actually use their devices in creative ways. So doing research with their, you know, devices, um, creating blog posts and podcasts and videos, editing those videos. So it's not just, you know, a general video that they've recorded with a phone. Um, and then, you know, doing deeper projects. But the other piece that I think connects to it is, um, in order to get students to become creators, they also need to be critical consumers. So like in Empower, I kind of share the cycle of critical consuming, right? So instead of just blindly consuming everything, critically consuming leads to inspiration, which then leads to creative work. And an example, when my daughter was really little, she's in middle school now, you know, she's super into art and she does art with a tablet and she does it physically and she's just now getting started on you know, putting them on t-shirts and things like that. My, my middle son does similar work. He has a little shop that he has created online. And um, they got into art as kids, partly from being inspired, right? We would watch old Bob Ross videos and then they would want to paint. So again, if you critically consume, it leads to creative work. So it's not that consuming is bad, but we want them at some point to be inspired then to create things of their own. Thank you. That may, makes a lot of sense. Thank you for explaining it. That's, Thank you. that's wonderful. Yeah. And I, I just have to add a caveat. I am a former librarian. So listening to you talk about um, critical consuming and tying that to research and being able to do good research, you know, like quality research, not just getting on Google and typing in whatever and yeah. just going through Google's hits, uh, but doing good, good analysis and research that that is that is so important. Well, and, you know, that's one. Of, I'm so glad that you brought that up because one of the things that I found to be really helpful was partnering with our uh, school librarian when we would do research. 
so that you know she would teach lessons on information literacy media literacy um and she was the one who really got me into this idea of creativity isn't always just creating something new it's also the curation process right mm -hmm. of having a critical eye collecting things that matter to you and, and it's right. that overlap of celebrating what you love but also being critical of it and um it is so true. I think curation is often that missing link between consuming and creating because when they consume and then they curate, it then becomes so much easier for them to, to create. Right. And I did a project with my students that makes me think of that curation process and mm -hmm. um, probably after reading one of your books, but, um, and it was just giving them the chance to learn research through a topic that was of interest to them, not just strictly like the curriculum, but I mean, and I'll be honest with you, I had a student who wanted to know, um, like more information about windshield wipers, like how, why we have windshield wipers, what are windshield wipers for? And I thought at first, that's, that's something that you can just Google. And that was my thing to them. If you can Google it and get the answer, you're really in like critical questions, like really thinking deeper and not just what you can find by a simple Google search. But it turned into this whole thing for him that he went down this whole thing about really how machines work and how things work. And he learned so much from it, but he was really inspired because it was a topic that, although might not have interested me, was something that he was really interested about and excited to share with our class, like what he learned. So I think that's important to sometimes teach those skills through that interest as well. And and yeah, remember that as um, a good way to to get them to be engaged in that way. I love that. And so I, cool. I love that whole notion too of just the the ways that you can get students to think deeply mm -hmm. about a shallow topic. And yes. I say shallow topic, meaning, you know, there is no shallow topic. You begin to discover like, you know, a, a student says, I, I want to do you know, Minecraft and you're like, all right, well, and then, and then they go super deep with it and they, they get into decisions that, that are made and worlds that are made and all this different stuff. And you realize you went really deep on a subject that I, because I have a shallow understanding of it, assume is a shallow topic. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And that, that kind of brings me back to my days too, being a librarian and partnering with teachers and, and doing genius hours mm -hmm. and uh, things like that to, to get kids to really dive into topics that are personally interesting to them um, mm -hmm. and just seeing how far they can go uh, with those things. Yeah. I love it. Really it. cool, oh. really exciting stuff. All right, all these, so, oh yeah, I, I love all these examples too. It's it's just like going from what it means to what it's like practically looks like in some of your classrooms. And I think I'm going to store that windshield wiper example, Heather. That well, you know, perfect. I mean, I think we're, we're so quick to think if it's not about the curriculum that I need to teach today, this exact teak or whatever it is. Then, then they can't learn that. They can't do that. You got to stay in this in this this little lane. But I think that that's the thing that I really was inspired um, from John is that you can let that their interests drive that learning of learning. I mean, those research skills and then creating a presentation in the format you want and then presenting it to an audience and having that real world authentic learning. It can be a windshield wiper or, you know, it can be something else, but it's, there's still learning happening. And sometimes we get too, you know, just tied up and I've got to do what I've got to do. And we don't think outside of that box. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, I agree. All right. Okay. I think I'm up for the next question. So uh, question four is, uh, can you tell us about why it's important for students to own the creative process and about the stages you've noticed take place when students move from consuming to creating? Yeah, I, I, I just think, um, you know, when we think of this idea of having them own the creative process, I think it should be every, every facet of the creative process should have some student ownership. And so um, if we think of, for example, design thinking, you know, students are asking their own questions, right? And they become more curious. They learn how to ask better questions. As they engage in research, they own that process. As they ideate and come up with ideas on their own, they're coming up with the the the, the actual ideas. Um, I love how Chris Lehman puts it. He's a, a principal in Philadelphia where he said, you know, if you get 30 of the same thing, that's recipe-based learning, not project-based learning. And so it's the idea of like, what they're coming up with should be their own, you know, the physical prototyping, but it's also the classroom management process or when they're working in collaborative groups and, and, and part of the creative process involves conflict. And so it's the conflict resolution process and teaching them a protocol for conflict resolution, but actually having them own that piece. So I think every aspect, you know, having them owning the process of assessing their work and seeing what needs to be improved and what's working and how to change and how to improve it. So the more that that happens, the more likely they are to to own every aspect of that. Um, you know, and I think when it comes to you know the stages from consuming to creating, I think there's a lot of different stages. Um, you know, I, earlier before I, I shared kind of. Um, the notion of, of a cycle that can go from you know, consuming to being inspired to creating. Um, I know we also shared in our book Empower this idea of, you know, sometimes it goes from consuming to inspiration to mashups to, to other things. I think, like I said before, you know, curation um, can be a part of the process. But I think the key thing is that there's no set specific stages, right? Um, everyone's journey is going to be different, but I think it is important that we remember that the stages are necessary and that every time they go from just kind of consuming without thinking into a place of eventually actually creating, then um, whether it's mashups, whether it's fan fiction, whether it's, you know, there's a lot of different places that you can go until you eventually get there. Um, that that journey itself is a really iterative process and that um, that we should be celebrating that. As you were talking, I was thinking about myself and I don't know if any of y'all have um, ever encountered this or not, but you know, when you go through that process, when you're like critically consuming something that you're enjoying and you're curating and then you make something from that, it's almost it's almost addicting. Like you just wanna do it again. You're like, man, I'm really proud of myself. Look what I did. Okay, I want to keep doing this. And so you, it kind of, um, I guess, fuel, fuels you or sparks you to, to do more. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a good feeling. Yeah, it is. It's like, well, a, I, also, I also think like, um, you know, students learn to, that they're not, 
I don't know. Nobody wants to be micromanaged and no one wants to just be done to do what they have to be told to do, you know, like, and so having that freedom to, um, to own the learning, I think is inspiring to kids. And I think when teachers do that, teachers, kids in response will give you more and do more because they're excited to be trusted and to be respected in that way. And so I think it just kind of builds on itself in that way as well. When, and you know, when we're trying to encourage kids to be lifelong learners and build that into them, mm-hmm. if you think about it, if you do micromanage that, then they don't build that intrinsic motivation and they mm-hmm. don't get that rush that you were just talking about, Amy, when that's what I felt like when you were talking, I'm like, it's like that rush when everything comes together, you've discovered something new, you've created something new and shared it with others. And then you're like, wow, this is cool. You know, it's like a natural high. And so, um, so important to, to encourage their ownership as much as possible. Um, to get them there. Yeah. One um, of the things that that I'll say about that is, you know, when, when I, um, when we first went into quarantine, I was uh, a cohort leader, university of, you know, these priest service teachers, and we hadn't done virtual before. We were not a virtual cohort. I'd led the virtual cohorts before, but this was supposed to be an in-person one. And they were not excited about quarantine. They were not excited about virtual they all show up, you know, graduation's just been canceled. It's three weeks before graduation, all that kind of stuff. We get onto um, our Zoom meeting and um, the very first thing I do is I say, um, we're gonna do show and tell and you need to show an item that represents a healthy way that you're handling the quarantine. And um, I was just struck by how the students who had a creative outlet were just doing better. You know, it was a lifeline for them. It was it was what was keeping them going. Um, and it wasn't just creative work. It was also people who were, you know, exercising or, but, you know, baking, gardening, knitting, painting, writing, reading, because I think of reading as a creative act too. You know, all of those things were they were the ones who were doing the best with it. Right. And, um, and, and we often think about, you know, creativity as preparing them for the future and preparing students for jobs. And it does. But the other thing is, I I do think there is this deeply human aspect where when you engage in that creative work, it makes it easier when the world gets hard and unpredictable. You know, there's just something about it that it, it it is that outlet for for people. Um, and I thought, yeah, that I lost sight of that a little bit and was really viewing it through the soft skills lens and forgetting, no, this is actually necessary just for life itself. I know exactly what you're talking about with I was a third grade classroom teacher at the time that the pandemic started and I mean, getting the kids to do the work that I was supposed to get them to do was like pulling teeth and it was hard to get that back. But um, I was trying, I felt like I was um, more like managing social emotional learning and their emotional, social emotional health, if you will. But we did a talent show and you know what? 
every single kid submitted uh, a video of their talent and oh, wow. um, just connections like that. And we did, um, we did a read aloud and it was like a choose your own adventure. Mm -hmm. And so I would read and record and share it with them. And then they would vote on which way we would go the next day. They all showed up, like they all voted on that. And those things, those making those connections and more of that creative thinking, I think you're right. It was what, what we chose to do when we, you know, couldn't control and nobody really, they, they didn't really care about, did they do their math work or whatever, but, you know, we got through it, but I think those are the things that glued that all together. So I agree mm -hmm. with you that creativity is critical at any time. And it's nice to have that to fall back on when you do come across those hard times. It's, it's like, it's necessary for thriving. It's mm -hmm. not just, you know, a nice, nice to have, you know, it's nice if we can make, our kids into creators or in or create environments that that give them that it's it's like a lifelong thriving when you are constantly able or when you've had that experience and so when you get to a place you know that you you can do it again and so um oh gosh this is awesome so it kind of leads to my uh question too that i have now is um because we've been obviously talking so much about the importance of owning your learning and the creative process but then there's like another uh even step next step of innovation and mm -hmm. so john what what does innovation mean to you and and how is it related to and or how does it differ from creating i think for me innovation is about doing things in a way that's different and, and in a way that's better. Um, I think we often imagine innovation as being flashy and new, but often it's just doing something in a way that's different. Um, and in the process, it allows you to do things better. Um, you know, when you think about, um, what's going to allow us to, 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 to do well in space travel. Obviously, advanced math is part of it and new technology. But there's a really old art of origami that's being used to help get spacecraft up, right? And that's a really old idea, but that's innovative. So it's, it's not that it's a new art form. It's a really, it's an ancient art form being used in a different context. And I think a lot of times it's about that. It's about doing things in a different way. Um, I think there's a lot of overlap between creativity and innovation. Um, but I think, you know, because anytime you are really creating something, you're doing something different. Um, but in general, I think maybe if there's a distinction I would make, it would be that you know, innovation can happen in work that isn't necessarily just creative. Um, you know, it can be modifying a system and doing it differently. It can be um, trying something that you've done before in a different context. Um, yeah, I think that that's how the distinction I would make. But that, I, I love that question because there really is, um, it's, it's tough. I'm trying to think of how I would define them differently. I love it because 
um, there's so much overlap between creating and innovation. Um, yeah. I think your example of, of that space telescope, the new one that we've just launched, and they def they use basically an origami process in order to um, compact yeah. and then deploy. Um, was it the solar? Yeah, it was the solar being able to for uh, for solar for, en for energy, right? For energy for uh, yeah to be able to and uh, yeah yeah. This shows that I didn't read it closely enough when I was reading about the telescope, but that's that is such an. I love that example because it's something that's existed for thousands of years. And then someone who was trying to figure out this engineering problem went, Hey, let, what if we did this, you know? And um, so, wow, that's cool. Yeah. And it is, that's hard to wrestle with. Like when, when are you innovating? And in a way you're, I think you're right. Anytime you create, if you're doing it in a, in a way that's new or unique and better, it, it can be an innovation. It doesn't have to be suddenly coming out with an iPhone. It can just be, let's make this process work better for everyone else. So I love that. Thanks. Okay, y'all. So this, this makes me think of my game. I don't know if Heather, if you and Sandy have played it yet, but John, I'm going to tell you about it. And you may or may not know about this game, but it's called Disruptus. Yes, and, I played you, Amy. <laughs> oh, it's so okay, John. You need to look at this game. It's really cool. It's uh, it's called Disruptus, okay. and um, it is a game to encourage disruptive thinking Ooh, to okay. lead to innovation. And uh, basically, it's it's a pretty basic concept. You have some cards, and the cards have different objects on them, mm -hmm. and um, you have like the the game show host or whatever, and they roll a dice. And based oh. on what the dice is rolled, what it says is based on what the people do with their cards. So one of them oh. is like a creation. So they they draw a card and they say they get, you know, um, a, a fork and a drill. They have to come up with a way to put those two items together to make something new out of them. So they could put the fork in the drill and use it to, you know, swirl up their spaghetti faster. Um, oh, yeah, it's really cool. There's another one where they have to transform the object. So, you know, uh, say they, they got the dinosaur skull, uh, they could transform it into a salad bowl. You know, it's, it's uh, these Love these it. really cool ideas and we've played it with teachers and it's amazing oh, so the fun. stuff that these groups of teachers have come up with with like really really random items and it just helps with that idea of disruptive thinking so i'm gonna check it um, out that sounds yeah you need to check it out it's really cool <laughs> i'm you can cut this part out but i'm i'm working on a, a game right now with my oldest son um, and it's basically uh, idioms, but they're translated into uh, other phrases. So it would be like um, uh, a data deficit is euphoria, right? And that's ignorance is bliss or um, the uh, arm joint liquid fat would be elbow grease. And so you have a, <laughs> I know it's just really bad um carbon-based organisms remain like that's life goes on so th there it's it's um 
and then there's levels like there's e e you know easy medium hard those would be on the on the harder side um so i don't know why i felt like i needed to share that <laughs> i love that i love it <laughs> It's, I think it's a testament. Do we have to cut that part out? Because I think it's cool. <laughs> no, we, we don't want anyone to steal his idea. <laughs> no, no one's going to steal it. Unless it's top secret. <laughs> um, yeah. But, uh, well, the reason the reason I don't want to cut it out is because both in um, in Amy's example and in yours, John, it's, it's a testament to how um, kind of uh, how you can put the fun of play and even games into learning. Um, we hear that term gamifying learning a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. me included when it when it was first coming out and even still now, that that sounds like something huge that I would not even know where to begin to tackle. But mm -hmm. y'all just gave two examples of how um, putting it in the context of a game, you are really encouraging critical thinking and making connections and all those kinds of things. So I don't want to cut it out because it's a great example. <laughs> they both are. Games and play, because I think that those are so tightly uh, connected to, to creative thinking and innovation. And there's a really interesting, um, there was a, a book I was reading called The Dawn of Everything. And one of the things he argues is that um, we often think of innovation as someone is given a problem and then they solve it using the resources they have and that's a part of innovation that's a huge part of innovation but there's another side of innovation where the source of the innovation is play and then someone creates something meaningless with the play or, or not deeply profound and practical and then it's then given a practical use later so gunpowder doesn't start out for weapons, it starts out for fireworks. And before fireworks, it starts out as play to see colors and shapes that happen, right? Or, um, you know, the development of paper, it didn't start with paper, it came from someone who was inspired by what wasps were doing. And the question of, could, could we make a similar texture? And what would have to be used? Because you don't want to use saliva, right? You know, which is what... <laughs> But, you know, and and now anthropologists are realizing that m the shift from hunter gatherer to to farming wasn't solving a problem. It was play farming was what they described it. And, and one of the big surprising things to anth anthropologists and um, this sort of shows a gender bias was they're discovering that farming developed during hunter gatherer times almost entirely by women who had gathered more than enough and they were playing with how they could modify plants, playing with how they could put seeds in different locations, playing with what would happen if you went longer. And that, that agriculture didn't come from some big problem that had to be solved, it came from play. Uh, and I just found that to be really fascinating, this notion of, uh, and it just describes a lot of big inventions that happened not because of solving a problem but because someone was playing with something um i mean even the printing press someone was playing with a wine press and goofing off and and that was the beginning of what you know basically launched the the literary age so you know it's just a wow. really interesting kind of concept that sometimes play is the starting place yes oh that's so cool
I love where that went. That's awesome. <laughs> what was what was the name of that book again? It's called The, the Dawn of Everything. When you're the in history, Dawn of Everything, okay. you're not in history. So, um, like it took it in a way different direction, but yeah. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> that's so cool. Thank you. Well, we have one more question for you, and um, I think this is you know like our teachers are probably hearing all this. You're like, oh, that sounds great, but like if they're still struggling with the idea of like all the what ifs and like how to use technology and learning or creating um, that all this is going to like create more issues for them with classroom management or their assessments or, but I've got this year at a glance, like what advice do you have for teachers just to kind of get started kind of um, stepping away from that lane, if you will, and expanding their thinking? Yeah, I think, sometimes you you experience change fatigue it's just too much change to try to like oh i'm gonna go student-centered and i'm gonna do all these different things so i think that the the piece of advice i would give is find one area and test it out give yourself permission to let it fail go small and see if it works so it may be that what 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 you're going to do as a first step is I'm going to use an online form to have students do a self-assessment and reflect on their learning. Well, that's a big first step. And, you know, it could be Google Forms if that's what you use, if it's a different, you know, software, whatever. Um, it could be that you say, you know, I'm going to start really small. And, and when students do a warm up, I'm going to give them three options and then they will have an option where they can make up their own option, right? And you're really beginning with just the warm up and, and something like that. Uh, it could be a choice menu that you give students at the beginning um, and, and allowing them to have a choice menu. Um, it could be a single day project, like a, a wonder day project, or um, you know, it could be a one week project, you know, geek out blogs or something like that. Um, it could be something as small as in math, having students compare and contrast strategies and talk about what worked for them. All of those are aspects of having them own their learning. And so I would just say, find one thing that you want to, to do first, test it out, see if it works, and then build on that. And the more you build on it, the more it snowballs and suddenly you realize three years later, oh my gosh, this student, there's a lot more student-centered learning. What I will say is the classroom management is something that you have to consider if you're doing a big shift like, say, project-based learning. Um, I have a, a blog post on project-based learning and classroom management, and um, there's a free download there connected to it where you know, I walk people through a, a set of questions to help guide a classroom management plan because it is different for classroom management. But once you've planned those structures, those rules, those expectations, those procedures, what I found was classroom management got easier. The moments where that are that are cringeworthy for me as a teacher where I, you know, yelled at a class or I shamed a student, I never shamed individual students, but you know, shamed a class or whatever, you know, things that I look back on and go, oh, I wish I'd never done that. Um, those were almost always during very traditional lessons. <laughs> you know, it was during a math lesson and I'm modeling something and kids are getting frustrated and they don't understand it and they're talking to each other and they're talking over me. And then I'm suddenly saying, would you be quiet? You know, um, 
that's literally happened, right? I mean, and 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 um, those were traditional, you know, lessons I was doing. By contrast, classroom management was always easier when engagement is high, when empowerment is there, and so. Although I was afraid that letting go of control would mean the students would act wild, that really wasn't the case for me. Um, you know, like I said, it was pretty rare that I had to correct students during an authentic project, you know, and there was definitely never any moment where I, yeah, raised my voice, you know? those moments always had happened in a traditional way. And, and I, I, I totally agree with you because I came from a project-based learning campus as well. And I think there's just something when, when it is authentic and there's purpose behind it and they can see that and they're a part of that. They are, I mean, that engagement, I think really does increase as well, like you said. And um, they don't, I think the I think it's the the boredom or the having to do what they don't want to do with that's what creates the resistance or the maybe acting out, if you will. So I totally agree with you. And yeah. it, I think something that's important to remember is probably the kind of atmospheres y'all are talking about in your classrooms did not happen overnight, right? Like it's incremental both for the teacher, um, but also for the students because if you're moving students from a place where they've been essentially kind of scripted with what they're supposed to do every day to a place where yeah. they have more um, autonomy, you're moving them toward autonomy. And it's hard because when I was in the classroom and I would try stuff like that, I would get frustrated because they would ask me a million questions and um, I'd have to go back and think, okay, did I not give enough guidance? Or is this just part of the process of they're not used to this yet? Mm -hmm. And so I need to maybe slow down and, and add a little more scaffolding for them. Or I just need to take a deep breath and realize this is part of getting there. Yeah. So, Well, I think that, that can be our uncomfortableness too. Like, because we're not used to it. You know, until we get used to it, we expect things to be a certain way um, as well. You know, it's not just the kids that have to have that shift, I guess. Well, and I think like when I was in my, I think it was maybe first or second year of teaching, I had a, a mentor teacher who was in my building and uh, she came in to observe while she was on a prep period. And then we met during her prep period and she came to me and she said, you know, um, it, was a, it was a good lesson, that kind of stuff, whatever. But I want to talk to you about someone. Um, there's, there's someone in your class that you are, um, you, you seem to be holding a grudge against you're not showing this person any grace you are holding them you know you're holding him to a way higher standard than everybody else in the room and um i this is hard but you need to you need to show him some grace and um i was like who is it? i'm trying to think of which student and she was like it's it's you right and i was like oh and she said you need to show yourself the same grace that you're showing to um your students and um she said would you ever get mad at a student for making mistakes in their learning i was like no i i, I don't like 
I don't get upset that they're making mistakes. It's part of the learning process. And she was like, then why would mistakes, like what makes you think you get to jump over mistakes in your learning process and how to be a teacher? And it was just so freeing to be like, I am being way too hard on myself, you know? And I think um, getting past that mental barrier was what allowed me then to to try something like project-based learning. And, and I'm, I'm thinking it was my first year of teaching, if I remember this correctly, but yeah, that conversation was huge for me to realize, look, it might not work perfectly, but I, I need to be as patient with myself as I am with my students. I love that, that's awesome. Yeah, it's a great, that's a great story. All right, so we, we are coming to the end. Yeah. Um, Gosh, I hate I hate for it to come to an end. This has been a great conversation. <laughs> um, no, but before before we close out, um, is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners, John, before we we end? Yeah, I guess what I would just say is I know that this year has been really really hard, and um, so my hope would be that you hear what I've shared, not as a, a challenge to teach differently or not as you know you're not doing enough you know my hope would be that you hear what i shared through a lens where you can say i'm already doing a lot of this stuff and now what can i build on to to try something new you know um because the reality is if if you're a teacher and you're listening um i want to say real clearly thank you for the hard work you're doing this this year is really really challenging. And so um, I just, my hope for you would be um, to keep going, keep doing the amazing work that you're doing and, um, and to recognize that it is making a difference, even when it's hard to see whether you're making a difference, which has been the case for a lot of teachers this year. For sure. Thank well, you for those words. Yeah, I was going to say thank you for that message. And thank you for joining us today, taking time out of your busy schedule to spend an hour with us. Um, we appreciate it. And we will be sure to post information um, about Dr. Spencer's website, his podcast, and his books on our blog, our digital learning blog, um, and this episode uh, later on this month. Thank you so much. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you Thank so you. much. Hey, listeners. I am here with Wagner Middle School Learning Design Coach Jessica Powell. Mrs. Powell has also been an English language arts teacher for middle school here in GISD. And I want to welcome you to Digital Buzz Radio. Well, thank you, Amy. So I had a couple questions for you regarding uh, book snaps. Um, I know that you used these as a project in your language arts classrooms. Um, can you tell us a little bit what a book snap is? Sure. So uh, when we used book snaps in my language arts classroom, they were a way for students to reflect on the reading that they were doing in their independent reading books. And so they were essentially a picture of the book that the students would take either of a, a specific passage or a page that they were analyzing for a skill. And then they would use drawing and text tools and other things like that 
to um, kind of mark up and annotate that picture of the page that they took and show me the thinking that was going on in their heads as they were reading. So it was a visual way for me to see what they were thinking about when you they were using that skill as they were reading. Can you tell us um, some of the tools they used to create these book snaps? Like how did they take the pictures? Uh, what did they use to mark up and annotate their book snap? Sure. So um, when we were doing book snaps in my classroom, we used Seesaw to do this. Um, it made it really easy for the students to be able to take a picture and then um, annotate it with all the different drawing and text tools that are already built into Seesaw. But you could just as easily use something like Jamboard or a Google Slides or Google Drawings um, to do a book snap as well. You would just have the students take a picture with whatever they're able to take a picture uh, with. It could be your Chromebook, or if you're using iPads, you could use that as well. And then import it into whatever the tool is that they're using, and then use the drawing and text tools in that um, to go ahead and annotate their text. Oh, that's great. So it sounds like they have a lot of different options. Yes. And how they can create their book snap. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit how students use these in the classroom? Like what was the assignment or what were they supposed to be demonstrating in their learning with a book snap? Sure. So um, I use the readers and writers workshop model in my classroom. And so often there was a specific skill that we were learning. For example, if we were making inferences, um, I would ask the students to be on the lookout for an inference as they were reading. So they had to really monitor their thinking skills as they were reading their independent reading book that day. And then if they found a place where they knew that they had made an inference, they would mark it in some way, maybe with a post-it or something. And then later on in the week when we were doing stations, one of their um, stations that they would have to do was to create this book snap. So at that point, they would go back into their book. They would take a picture of that page that they had previously marked, and then they would mark with their annotation tools the evidence that they found that, that helped them make their inference and then write a little blurb out to the side telling me about the inference that they made. What a great way to get your students to critically think about what they're reading and then turn that critical thinking around to make a, a very creative product. Yes, they seem to really enjoy it. We used lots of, the students were welcome to add things like pictures or drawings that helped kind of like add to their annotations and they really enjoyed that part of it as well. That's awesome. So how, um, how would you describe how book snaps tie into the Georgetown ISD learner profile traits of both critical thinking and creates and innovates? Sure. So students were definitely doing a lot of critical thinking because one of the things that I think is really difficult for students of any age is that metacognition kind of piece of reading. And so it was really important to me that kids not only could identify how to use a skill, but also they knew when they were using it as they were reading. So for a student, they might be making inferences all the time, but it was really important to me that they could identify and slow down when they were making that inference and be able to explain how they made it to somebody else. So this was a way for them to show their critical thinking skills in like a visual way. And then the create and innovate piece um, was, it was super flexible for students because they were able to choose how they wanted to get that thinking across to me. So some students really prefer to just tell me in words how they were how they were analyzing that portion of the book, but other students did rely more on like pictures or graphics, things like that. 
wonderful. So it gives them a lot of options and choice in using their creativity. That's yes. great. All right. So we have one last question for you. And that is, um, if there was a teacher who is not familiar with book snaps, but is inspired by listening to you talk about them, what advice would you give that teacher on how to introduce book snaps to their students? Sure. So first of all, the lovely Amy Heil introduced these to me once upon a time. I did not know what a book snap was. Um, some advice that I would start out with is actually before you even assign it to a student, go take a look on the internet. There are lots of wonderful examples of book snaps and um, you can see what they might look like in your own classroom and kind of decide how they might fit into the structure of the class that you were already running. And then the second thing that I would say is um, don't just give students free reign. Uh, so we specifically decided that we were going to use Seesaw because we had the ability to access it. And we got the students really good at one tool because we didn't want students spending a lot of time figuring out a new tool every time. Yes. We really wanted the focus to be on the critical thinking that the students were doing. So choose a tool, get students really good at it. And then um, at that point, you know, they can be as creative as they want within that tool and, and using their book snaps. I, I love that. And so um, listeners, if you are interested, um, I know that Ms. Powell just uh, mentioned going online and looking for book snaps. Um, a good resource to go to is taramartin.com. She is kind of the pioneer of the book snap. And um, her website is T-A-R-A-M-A-R-T-I-N.com. And you can learn everything you want to know um, about book snaps. Also, um, please feel free to reach out to any of your campus digital learning coaches. I know we would be excited, just like I was excited with Mrs. Powell, to work with her to get book snaps started in your classroom. Can I throw in, in one more thing? Of course you okay. can. <laughs> I was just gonna say, um, as teachers, we're all teachers of reading and writing. And so book snaps aren't just for language arts teachers. Yes. They are for any class where you are consuming a text of some kind. And um, I know that they can be extremely useful when reading nonfiction texts because we use nonfiction texts in my classroom as well. So if you're a science or a math or a history teacher, and you really want students to analyze what it is that they're looking at, um, this is a great way to do that as well. I am so glad that you added that to the conversation so that, you know, book snaps are for everybody, not just for the language arts classroom. Yes, we may need a new name for them. I Some, think so too, maybe. Yeah. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today on Digital Buzz Radio, and thank you for all your great insight on book snaps. You're very welcome. Well, listeners, that brings us to the end of today's episode. We hope you enjoyed listening and learning from our guests as much as we did. Students are online more than ever, and so empowering them to be critical thinkers and to reach their creative potential is essential. Be sure to check out our blog post at bit.ly forward slash G-I-S-D-D-L blog for resources discussed in today's episode. We'll catch you on the next episode of Digital Buzz Radio. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Digital Buzz Radio. This podcast is a production of the Georgetown ISD Digital Learning Team. Music titled Innovation by John Yasut, obtained from Pixabay under a license for non-commercial use. We invite you to subscribe to Digital Buzz Radio on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Anchor. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at 
GISD DigiLearn. That's GISD D-I-G-I-L-E-A-R-N. We look forward to you joining us next time for the latest buzz about all things digital learning.